This is Stephen Blackwood. I'm here in Oxford, England with Douglas Murray, and I have the great pleasure today to discuss with him his new book, The Madness of Crowds. Douglas, thank you for coming. It's a great pleasure. I know that because this book is only just now being released, not many of our listeners will yet have had a chance to read it, although I hope very many of them will avail themselves of that opportunity in the nearest possible future. But just to whet the appetite, so to speak, um, what is the madness about which this book is written? Well, it starts from the premise that, that something is going badly wrong in our societies, by which, broadly speaking, I mean Western liberal democracies, and that we are going through some kind of great derangement. Uh, people are behaving in ways online and off that are more and more deranged. They are uh, ruder, uh, more uh, excitable, to be polite about it. And uh, I've been noticing this for some time, and uh, let, let me get specific. A specific set of issues uh, are especially deranging us, and I, I think there are quite a number one could go to, but the ones I... I centre this book around are gay, women, that is, relations between the sexes, race, and trans. Now, some of these are more connected than others, but they all go on the same continuum. And what I, I think people might, your listeners might recognise a version of the following. What I noticed was each of these issues in recent years, indeed in my uh, adult lifetime, appeared to be docking into some acceptable and desirable location. So gay rights got exponentially better throughout the latter part of the 20th century to the point of full equal legal rights. And um, it was all looking good. It was looking like those of us who were gay were being better and better accepted. And and it was it was pretty much, it was, it was coming into dock fine. And then I just noticed that suddenly everything was about gay and it was being weaponized. And it felt like gays were being used as some kind of battering ram, a political bat battering ram, among other things. And it made me more and more disturbed, more and more concerned. Why was this happening? Why, why has a perfectly reasonable rights claim uh, uh, suddenly become this toxic after the point of victory? And I noticed that it was the same thing was happening in every other area. Uh, the issue of, I mean, women's rights, equal rights for women had never been better, pretty much was getting to the desirable point. And then it was as if the, the, the engine, having just drawn into the station, suddenly got filled with a new head of steam, went careering off down the tracks and casting people aside in its wake. And I noticed the same thing was happening with race, particularly in America, but I think in other countries as well, at the point at which things had never been better, they were portrayed as if they'd never been worse. And then this one came along that was just more deranging than any, which was the issue of trans. And uh, there are specific reasons I go into why that's become so deranging. But that became, that has become one of the clearest ways to understand what is really going on, that that rights claims are becoming about something else. And what I think, in short, they, they are, is it's an attempt to impose a new metaphysical system on the West, and that it, it should be recognized as such. It's a very profound effort to ground morals of a new kind, 
and you ground them mainly in these areas, not only in these areas, you could say there are other things like green and other things that come up, which people try to ground their morality in today. But broadly speaking, being on the right side on LGBT issues as people see them, being seen to be a feminist or an ally of feminism, in, even in its most uh, uh, vociferous latest manifestations, was the thing to do. Being anti-racist, as if anyone thought being racist was a good idea in recent years, and then being a sort of ally to trans and being... These are the ways of demonstrating virtue. And my view is that this, in a, in a sort of secularized society, has become a new means of demonstrating ethical decency. And people have to be very careful because, as I lay out for reasons that become clearer and clearer as the book goes on, this is creating hell and it's going to get worse. Thank you for that. I'm very keen to, as our discussion goes on, speak to you about this, what you describe as a new sort of metaphysical system and to tease out the assumptions of that, to think about what is uh, both said and not being said in that, and then ultimately to ask about ways forward or uh, more robust, more adequate accounts of our human experience. But I think it's very important in this discussion for us to make clear, as you do very declaratively in your book, that your, uh, your, your contest, your, 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 your critique of the way in which these ideological standpoints are being uh, promulgated in the present day is not for a second to contest. There haven't been or may not be still what you call, I think, legitimate human rights Right. claims and concerns. Right. So uh, lest anyone should, for a second listening to us, wonder whether uh, uh, Douglas Murray's uh, position in this book is simply to be critical of those, uh, let's say, uh, well-meaning people looking mm. to secure equality of rights and access of marriage and so on and so forth. To the contrary, mm. you are yourself a, uh, a strong... Uh, from all I have read of your work, uh, they have a very well-delineated position in favor of those obvious and mm. necessary uh, forms of progress and recognition of the, you might say, the full diversity of uh, forms that mm. human beings take. So if I can just start with that, the acknowledgement mm. that there have been in the past and are legitimate human rights claims and set that to rest at the very beginning of this conversation. I thought, for example, um, I think this needs to be said for those who haven't had a chance to read your book, your consideration in the final uh, chapter on trans mm. of the writer Jan Morris. Right. Uh, uh, you're clearly very sympathetic mm. of the complexity of, to, sorry, sympathetic to the complexity of reality, and you speak about Jan Morris, precisely to show that there are those for whom there are profound questions here that yeah. need to be asked. And Something addressed. is happening. Something yeah. is yes. happening. So I want to do that because what I'd really like to ask is, what is it that is going on that is distinct from an effort to satisfy a genuine human rights claim? I think I think one thing starts in, in the following, which is, I mean, when I give that analogy of the, the the train appearing to draw into the station, then weirdly weirdly careering off into the distance with a new mm -hmm. head of steam. What I mean is that 
among other things, rights movements don't seem to be very good at going home when the battle is won. Now, some people say, well, the battle isn't won, so why would we go home? Well, it would seem to me, and I give a lot of examples in the book, that, that there's a type of person for whom the barricade attitude suits them. These people have become rather dangerous in recent years. Uh, the late Australian political philosopher Ken Minogue uh, came up with a phrase in The Liberal Mind, uh, which I quote, where he referred to what he, he described as St. Georgian retirement syndrome. And I think to a great extent that those people who... Um, th there is a type of person today who exactly fits the St. Georgian retirement syndrome. That is that uh, the situation of St. George after he slayed the dragon, that the, the dragon having been slayed, St. George is enormously acclaimed across the land for his dragon-slaying skills, and he searches for ever more dragons to slay, and uh, eventually um, is fighting with smaller and smaller beasts until eventually St. George may be found swinging his sword at thin air. Um, there are very interesting examples of this that have gone on. For instance, the gay rights campaign, there are significant elements of it in the gay press and elsewhere that have realized in recent years that basically the thing is over, the thing is done, dusted, battle won. So what do they do? They either have to pretend the battle isn't over, in fact it's never been worse and that's why you've got to give us your cash, or they have to find different fights to pick up. So the obvious one is that some of this has picked up trans. So there, there are gay groups who have said, like Stonewall in the UK, they used to say some people are gay, get over it, as their slogan. And now they're saying some people are trans, get over it. These are, as it happens, I think, and I demonstrate in the book, very different demands, actually. Um, uh, not the least of these is that it's slightly easier to get over the idea that some people are gay than to get over the idea that some people are trans and that therefore children should be given puberty blockers, for instance. The get over it doesn't seem to be quite the tone to speak about that in. But that's one option. Is, 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 one option is you pretend it's never been worse. Another is you transfer your campaigning on to another thing. I, I, to a great extent, this is a... All of the things I'm describing are... are and obviously many people will find this highly offensive, but here we go, it's the case anyway. This is something for people to do. This is a, a thing in late modernity, late capitalism, whatever you want to call it, where people want to do something. They would love to have been at the Stonewall Inn on the Crucial Nine. They would have so given those cops hell, they think. They would love to have been at the height of the civil rights movement in America they would have been on the right side, and so on and so forth. So there seems to be some generational attitude that has come after these major rights fights have occurred, and after an enormous amount of very brave men and women have fought hard. But these people seem to want a bit of it too. Well, let me, <clears throat> I suppose the reason I wonder about the motivations there uh, is because you know, we have huge problems in the world that don't make, don't make the grade. Whether we want to talk about uh, poverty in certain places of the world, human trafficking, there's any number of things that are very well documented, acknowledged by international bodies that don't ever even make it onto the, as it were, the radar of outrage. 
So suppose what I want to ask you is, uh, well, let's start with, let's, let's move through a couple of questions. The first is, you've talked about the madness. The second is, the, the other side of the title, the madness of crowds. What role do crowds play in the madness that you are articulating? An incredible uh, amount, because what I'm struck by is the swiftness with which these new metaphysical claims and these new societal foundations have moved very fast and very hard into the mainstream. My own view is that it's a post-2008 movement. I, it, it's come into the mainstream very swiftly in the wake of the financial crisis. It's not clear to me uh, why young people who can't accumulate capital will be great lovers of capitalism. So... To some extent, the old sort of right of center critique that, you know, life's simply never been better, so what are you moaning about, is is true and not true. Um, it's uh, unclear to me why if a young person can't afford to get onto the housing ladder, uh, well, it, one thing that is clear to me is if you can't do those sorts of basic things that they felt that at any rate their parents' generation were able to do with not ease, but they were able to do. It wasn't a totally fantastical aspiration, only achievable by the millionaire class. Um, if that's the case, you might well be, among other things, vulnerable to, to, to equality claims that claim to be able to solve all human inequality and inequity everywhere in the world in your lifetime. It's, 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 it's a hell of a thing to do. It's an awfully big campaign. It's a very meaningful thing to devote your life to if you're searching for meaning. Um, so, so that's the first thing is that there is a, um, there, there is a, there is an appeal because of that, because it's, it's a, it's a meaningful, it's a meaningful campaign. And I think these ideas that I explain, I analyze the background of them in the book. The, the, the background of these claims has existed in the American Academy and elsewhere for at least 40 years. Some of it goes back earlier. I would some of it has very obvious Marxist substrates in it. But, but Give us a bit of an account of this as you see it. A, a sort of thumbnail sketch of the intellectual assumptions that animate this worldview? Well, there's several things. I mean, firstly, the obvious sort of vulgar Marxist bit of it, which is that society basically is constructed like a pyramid and that at the top of the pyramid is the sort of the, the capital. And as you go down, there are, set, there are a set of oppressed classes who are holding this pyramid up. There's a famous uh, uh, um, uh, uh, post of this from France in, in, the 19th, in the early part of the 20th century, which I cite at the beginning of the, uh, of the chapter on Marxism in the book. Um, basically, this interpretation of society, there are sort of oppressed classes. It used to be the working class. Now it's a set of rights classes, gays, trans, women, people of different uh, uh, ethnic backgrounds than people who are white, uh, are sort of holding up this thing. And, and they're being exploited. And at the top of the pyramid is not just the capital in this version of this sort of Marxist interpretation of the world, but, but specifically the white male patriarchal elderly capital. And that this is the most meaningful form of power. And I, I, I think the other, one of the other parts of this is that this, this very clear interpretation of, um, and again, this is a whole load of latter part of the 20th century theory, but apart from anything else, the sort of Foucaultian idea that, that power is the best way to understand the society that we're in, that, 
that really our society is obsessed and dominated by power and power dynamics and power discussion. And therefore, if you can only work out where the power resides, you can squeeze it out of the people who get it so that everyone else can drink some of it up and then we all, we all grow. So it is, is it safe to say, as, as I read that chapter in your book, the argument is, and of course others have made this argument, that the, the Marxist critique, which is to say uh, that generates a battle between classes over capital, mm. is in this sense transposed into a perceived battle over, over power and, partic and particular forms of what is allowed to be called power. So I suppose I'd like to go a little deeper into these underlying assumptions. Um, one thing that strikes me, so you, you say very early in the book that, uh, and as you have just already in this discussion, that there's a kind of implicit metaphysics mm. uh, behind underlying the sort of superstructure of this, this position. What do you see to be the, the fundamental assumptions in what you call this in the metaphysics that 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 are the as it were the grounding of this position. You, you spoke about power just now. Seems to me that's very fundamental. That mm. you know everything is reducible yeah. to a certain kind of power. Um, but uh, what else would you say? I, I, as I say, I have a few things I'd like to, to ask you about this. But uh, what is your what is your sense of the when you really delineate when you distill right down to the bottom? Mm. What is the worldview that is behind this? The worldview is pretty explicit. It is laid out in a set of theorists. By the way, the, the, that specific, let me just say, by the way, that that, that, what, that one of um, what the working classes used to be, the identity politics groups are now, isn't some like crazy right-wing invention. There are a number of post-Marxist theorists, most obviously Laclau and Mouffe, who I, I quote extensively, who are completely explicit about this in the mid-80s. They're completely explicit. The working class thing turned out not to work so far. So the revolution has to find new groups, and specifically they're in search of the identity groups. And they say, we will find this in sexual minorities, we will find this among women, we will find it among people of different races and other oppressed minority groups. And uh, this is, so this is, this is something which they were already doing as Marxism was falling apart. Yes, yes, yes. That, uh, just for those uh, listening who might want to check this out, one of the places Douglas refers to in his book is, uh, a, a work called Hegemony and Socialist Strategy. Have I got that right? Yeah. Uh, by Laclau and Mouffe, M-O-U-F-F-E. And, and, and they, by the way, I mean, this isn't some obscure text. This is, this is cited thousands of times on Google Scholar yes, and so yes. on. It, it's, it's a recognized sort of yeah. classic. Yeah. Um, so, so, so that's the first thing. This is a very important question you have about the, 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 the deep substructure of it. It's, it's laid out by the set of the so-called intersectionalist theorists in America from the 1980s onwards. It's, uh, there are other, there are various French theorists who lay the groundwork of this earlier. And it's, it's along the following lines. The world consists, the world we go into, we arrive into is simultaneously consists of a web which we need to unweave, and also a set of interlocking oppressions which we need to unlock. And that this process of unweaving and unlocking will do something. Now, the in, one of the interesting things is it's never made explicit quite what it is that it'll do, other than a vague assumption that universal justice is somewhere at the end road. Um, 
But it is that, that if we can understand the nature of the oppression in our society, we can undo the oppression. It assumes, I say, I mean, this is one of the obvious fundamental uh, uh, mistakes, which is the idea that uh, th these various alleged uh, oppression, the alleged or real oppressions, uh, have just so much in common that if we unlock one, we unlock the others, and eventually the whole, the whole Rubik's Cube sort of becomes, comes right. This, uh, uh, um, this is the presumption, but it's never stated, um, that something very good like, so, like social justice will exist at the end of the road of this. Um, but it, it starts from that, that, that we have to understand the interlocking oppressions and that to understand them, we'll be able to start the process of undoing them and to undo them will to be to free people. Um, there are so many things to say about this, but just one of them is, of course, the profound problem that so many of these alleged interlocking oppressions, never mind the identity groups in question, all have unbelievably painful runnings against each other. I mean, you know, gay runs against trans, women and trans run against each other, just for starters. Which is a very big thing because, because the presumption, as I say, is that all of these things will simultaneously be able to be unlocked. And one of the things that's obvious now after trying this for a few years is that that's not the case. It keeps throwing up contradictions. By the way, I started saying earlier that this is something I think that, that despite the fact that the groundwork for this was laid some decades ago, it's really only zoomed into the center of our society. Unless people think I'm making that bit up. I mean, I stress in the book, and I, I can't stress enough, the only people who think this isn't coming for them are people who are self-employed. Almost everybody who's working in institutions these days, from not just educational institutions, but banks and financial institutions and big firms, has versions of this dripping into the system, sometimes absolutely pumping its, its way into the system through human resources departments and, and much more. But it came into our society in the last 10 years, I think because our societies after the financial crash were vulnerable to bad ideas. Some of the main presumptions in our societies to do with capitalism, to do with the way the market worked and so on, had got a very, very big hit at their base. And these ideas were waiting in the wings and we became very vulnerable to them and we, we absorbed them uh, in super quick, quick time. Um, just one other thing, which is, of course, it's the assumption of some outsiders looking into this that this is not that problematic because it'll fall apart under the weight of its own contradictions. And one of the things I realized when I was researching the theory in this is, of course, that's not the case because the Marxist substructure of some of this makes it clear that actually, like Marxism, the contradictions aren't as much of a problem as they should be. I think that a theory which throws up profound contradictions ought to show there's a problem with the theory. But not everybody takes this view. Um, a lot of people, like Marxists in the past, see contradictions as no particular problem. Indeed, the contradictions are a thing to be embraced. One, one thing I'd like to pick up on, a well, number of things really I'd like to pick up on in what you've uh, just said, Douglas. The first is that I think when you drill into this worldview, one of the characteristics of it is, 
a kind of zero sum game hmm. that there is a, that that life is ultimately a kind of agonistic battle we yes. are not we don't have a shared nature we don't have shared ends we don't have a shared human culture we don't have a shared hmm. uh, a humanity even we whatever my group is and your group is, and we're no doubt parts of all sorts of different groups, we are fundamentally enemies in mm. which there needs to be a taking and a giving and a so on and so forth. And I suppose um, that, that zero-sum approach I take to be quite fundamental to the worldview that is driving this. Yes. So that, you know, one asks, well, what is the, what is the end? What is the end of the outside? Uh, because the end would have to at least articulate some positive vision for those. I worked uh, for several years in an in a inner city environment with children who had, you know, by any standard, were in profoundly difficult circumstances through absolutely no fault of their own. And, you know, t- to be with them, was to have a sense of their inner potential, their possibility, their their talents, their the ways in which they were actually oppressed and maligned and maimed in the world. Mm. And I bring that up because you know, to do that work at all, the work that people would call the work of justice or empowerment, demands that you have some positive vision mm. of what this person can become. And what I find very absent in this this zero sum worldview is any positive account of the human person, and that that well, that's certainly true. But 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 there's a there's a a, a deep and obvious um, advantage this worldview has, which is that it plays to grievance, and it plays to the sense that life is unfair and someone's to blame. So I am. There's a reason I'm not there, and it's because I've been held back because of one of my innate characteristics. Now, this isn't to say that people haven't been held back and doubtless still are held back in some places today because of innate characteristics. But again, I mean, you could play that game endlessly now because, uh, um, I mean, who, who on the planet cannot claim that something about themselves has at some point been used against themselves to hold them back? And and the, but then the presumption the, the presumption which is why the zero sum game point is important is that if you get it from the other group you will get more yourself. So the weaponization of women against men and men against women suggests that if the men could have a bit of a worse time, the women would be better off. Whereas the evidence would appear to be that if the men get a bit of a worse time, the women will end up with a slightly worse time too, maybe a much worse time. This this really gets to something very fundamental. I don't know what Douglas. I'm so glad you put it just that way, because this is where everything in me, everything in me rises up to say that this worldview is both profoundly wrong and unjust and counterproductive according to its own ends. So what I see in this is a kind of Reductivist materialism, materialist determinism, if I can put it mm, that way. Mm. So I am, you know, whatever my, my, my physical, sexual, racial characteristics are. No one would, of course, no sensible person would say those are unimportant or mm. not importantly constitutive of our human experience. But the position is that those are wholly determinative right. of my horizon. Well, th- th- there's several things going on simultaneously and a lot of people want to have all of it. <laughs> Um, they want not to be capped, 
captives of their characteristics, and yet, if it goes wrong, do want to be. So it's, it is useful on a case. It's useful if your life goes wrong or badly or not as well as you wished. Um, and then, of course, there are people waiting in the wings for whom this is purely politics. And that's worth remembering as well. And I, in each, cha- in each chapter in the book, I give examples of the moment when I realized we were talking about, if we're talking about power, what we're really talking about in the weaponization of these characteristics is political power. I saw it first, I think, with the, um, with the way in which black in America was becoming synonymous with left wing. Uh, as an example, I give in the book of uh, uh, the famous white woman who pretended to be black, uh, Rachel Dolezal. Uh, um, uh, Michael Eric Dyson is interviewed on MSNBC about her. And the interviewer says, do you think that that she can be black. She works for NAACP. Do you think she'd be black? And he says, I think that uh, um, Rachel Dolezal has adopted our community's concerns, our, our grievances, et cetera, et cetera. And he says, I think a lot of them, African Americans, would recognize that she's basically more one of us than, say, Clarence Thomas. Okay, so at this stage, being a black man who happens to be conservative doesn't count as black anymore. The white woman who is campaigning in exactly the right way is black because she's got the right politics. Try it on every single one of the other ones. Uh, is there a more famous, more important, more successful feminist in the last century than Jermaine Greer? Yet Jermaine Greer gets something wrong in this equation and is exiled from the feminist movement because mm-hmm. she won't do the trans thing. Or won't do it and in the way it, that certain people demand. Right. And then there's the, the, the very clear one of uh, Peter Thiel. Who I, I cite the example when, uh, when he comes out for Trump in the 2016 uh, um, Republican convention in Cleveland, he comes, he's the first, first time somebody on the Republican platform says, it's not the first time somebody gay has been on a Republican platform at the convention. It's the first time somebody has said that they are gay and said, I'm proud to be gay and I'm proud to be an American and so on. Should have been a great moment for the gay rights movement in America or what remained of it. No, no, no. It all goes horribly wrong. Advocate, the main gay magazine in America, immediately runs a piece saying, Peter Thiel may sleep with men, but in no sense is he gay. Because gay had by that point in the in the hands of the people who were by then weaponizing it, like the people who were weaponizing race, like the people who were weaponizing sexuality of its trans, and like the people who were weaponizing men against women and women against men, had become a purely political thing. It was, if you've got the right politics, you can be allowed, but it's not about the characteristic anymore. So the double-sided thing here, because on the, on the one hand, there's this reductivist, determinist materialism, in which you are only these... Uh, physical characteristics, let's say. And then on the other hand, there is, I think this is also quite important in this worldview that you delineate in the book, or that underlies the phenomena that you delineate in the book. There is the view that your identity is entirely unconnected from any, mm. is not subordinate to any kind of you know, rational determinations right. whatsoever. So, you know, gay or or, or, or trans or, or, or race or whatever these things may be in the examples you give of Greer and Teal and others, Dolezal, they're, they're actually completely un, unconnected to the objective facts on the ground. Mm. So one of the 
aspects of this I see is that, and you know, one of the, I think one of the great strengths of the madness of of crowds is how you bring a burden of evidence and examples to show how these positions have become inwardly incoherent. Mm. And it seems to me that that incoherence or that refusal to submit to standards of coherence mm. is also quite a fundamental aspect of this, uh, metaphysically yes. speaking. Yes. I, 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 we go back to the contradictions thing. The contradictions don't seem to be a problem. I, one of the reasons I, I've done this, one of the reasons I spent so, many, so much time looking into and to some degree laughing at this, this amazing set of presumptions that are being imposed is that I honestly beg people to step back from this brink because there is an awful lot of ugliness down the road. And you touch on one of them with this, this issue of what is this, what really is the thing about the characteristics that we're talking about here? If you can't ever escape them, what are we to do? What are we to do if there's something bad about the characteristics or something negative about the characteristics at some point? An example, I, uh, one way I look at this throughout the book is I, I, I point out that in most rights campaigns, the camp, certainly the gay rights campaign, the latter part of the 20th century, managed to successfully get public sympathy and public support for the cause by saying, no, it's not correct to say this is a lifestyle choice. We're born this way. It's not a software issue. It's a hardware issue. I can't choose. A massive amount of sympathy comes to anyone. I take the most obvious example. Why is it just widely recognized to be the most disgusting behavior imaginable to tease somebody for being disabled? Because like, the disabled person hasn't chosen to be disabled, you idiot. Like They're not doing it for fun. And what kind of a cretin would tease somebody for that or be rude to somebody for that? Like, how low do you have to go? So we know that. We, sadly, not everyone, every height of politics always seems to know that these days. But broadly speaking, there's been a consensus that we've agreed on. It's people do it, but stupid people, ugly people, like people who are really young and inexperienced. So everything that people can't affect is something which they can get sympathy on. And that it's a plausible, it's a reasonable thing. Gay rights moves to more acceptance when more people realize, rightly or wrongly, probably mainly rightly, that people don't choose to be gay. Um, but other rights movements pick up on that. And the trans movement has in recent years actually been auditioning to be seen to be a hardware issue. There is this incredibly painful inherent thing with the issue of the sexes, which is that at the same time as gay and trans are saying we're hardware, the presumption in our societies is being pushed in from the academy in the 80s onwards and now in the last 10 years into the mainstream society that in fact sex is a choice, by which I mean people choose to be men or women as a performative act. You, you just perform the gender and then you're sort of of that gender. Now, and that, that's, of course, you can't run both these programs at the same time. You can't say being trans is hardware but being a woman is software. But people are trying. But here's the one that's really ugly. What about race then? And loads of people are starting to pick up on this, and I'm deeply, deeply worried by that. I've really noticed it in the last couple of years. I think we probably all have. And I, I, I sniff around this and, and go into some of the things that people are, people are worrying about. The race one is an absolutely devastating one on this, because we don't know whether it's hardware or software or the extent to which it's which, and what are you going to do about it? And what are you going to tell people 
when you get the negative aspects of that. Uh, it's just one of the reasons I say just step back from this brink. We had an agreement. We had basically from Martin Luther King, we had something like an agreement in our societies, societies like Britain, America. We had something like an agreement that the characteristics and the, con the contents of somebody's character was the most important thing. And we judged people on that. And that the more basically, the more decent you were as a person, the more you were aware of that fact. That, that somebody who said that black guy or that gay guy or that girl, you know, that, that was sort of somebody who wasn't quite somebody you'd want to be around all that much. Because if they thought that was the most important thing or the only thing of the characteristics of that person, they were just not a great person. And then we have in recent years, I say particularly over the last decade, reduced people consistently to this in the name of not reducing them to that. That's, that's beautifully and I think very powerfully said. And I, I, I want to uh, uh, just spend another minute on this very, this very point. So you, you talk about that great civil, war, uh, civil rights uh, uh, champion MLK in the book. And, uh, and just here now you've, You've referred to the notion that it's the content of your character that defines you, and I, I really do see that in quite radical opposition to the to the to the current standpoint, uh, because that is one that you know if you know, character is something you choose. Character has to do with the will. You can work on it. You can work on it. It has to do with the acquisition of virtue over time. It has to do with what you you what you freely determine about yourself, rather than what you were involuntarily left with as a deck of cards in life. And so this seems to me to suggest that the ideologies driving this, that at their base, is a kind of determinism that is fundamentally opposed to the whole logic of civil rights. Because the whole logic of civil rights is fundamentally that we have an underlying shared nature, not just biologically, psychologically in profound ways, but also intellectually, that at the, le the level of spirit, that which we can will, is one that in which is, is, a, is, is, that is a level at which we all participate as human beings. But there's another side to this that I, w I want to bring out beyond the materialist determinism. And that is, and this comes out in your book uh, wonderfully several times, that one of the characteristics of this worldview is that identity is a matter of immediacy. It's, it's not something that develops over time, that becomes more meaningful through challenge and trial and suffering and ambition. It's, it's, it's a kind of epiphanic revelation. This is me. No, I know what I am. I'm four years old. I'm seven. I'm 12. I'm 16. I know what I am. And, you know, quite apart from the fact that let's just take this out of the realm of, of the, 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 the characteristics that are most pre prevalent in your descriptions in the book. Let's just take this to the most basic level of of, uh, of identity. I mean, I just don't buy it that immediacy is the thing. I mean, I know that's the that's the popular view, but let's say let's say for example, um, uh, let's take an example of uh, anything deeply meaningful. Let's say your your attachments to uh, family or culture or uh, intellectual realities. Let's say that that. The, let's say the, the piano. Let's say, I know that you have a background in music, as do I. Um, you know, music is 
in your ability to play it is not a matter of immediacy. It's true that you can listen to a piece of music, never even heard it, and find it beautiful. But you can't play it. You can't, you know, I could be, if I, if identity were a matter of immediacy, I could, you know, walk across the room to the piano and simply realize myself, you know, in the fullest, most beautiful way in a concerto on the piano. But if I haven't gone through the process whereby I become, anyway, you get the point. What I'm trying to get out here is that, you know, the, the opposite of meet, of immediacy is mediation. And I suppose one of the things that I think is most damaging about this worldview that would have us believe that identity is just this determinist immediacy mm. is that it, it cuts off, it blocks the whole horizon right. where real meaning actually lies. Well, we can already see the... There's a, there's a sign you can see at the start and a consequence you can see at the end. The sign you can see at the start is something I noticed many years ago and... It was people starting things by saying, speaking as a. Mm. I'd always had a visceral reaction against this. I hate it. I do actually have an Irish historian friend who said to me, you shouldn't be so critical of that, Douglas. I did a lot of damage to the IRA back in the day by starting every question with speaking as an Irish woman. So uh, there, are some, <laughs> there are some people who should be allowed a pass card on this. But broadly speaking, I've always disliked this. I, if your question's good, if your point is good, it doesn't matter whether you're a Puerto Rican lesbian or whatever you are. It doesn't matter. I'm not interested. But of course, you know what really is underneath that, which is, it's, there's a plea somewhere underneath it, which is people like X, sometimes it's people like you, have had an awful lot of time to speak, and it's time that people like me spoke too. Something like that. It's, it's an appeal to authority, actually. It's an appeal to superior authority by dint of your characteristics. Because to steel man it, X type of person has had the microphone for a long time and I'd like it on behalf of people of X characteristic. The consequence down the road from this, of course, is the consequence right at the end of the road of this is that you can only remain able to access things within your own category. And I think this is the discipline of X studies, gay studies, which then becomes queer studies. And I, I say in the book the, the difference between gay and queer, which I don't think anyone's gone into before, but I find fascinating. Uh, women's studies. Do men study women's studies? Sometimes, not common. There's a profound uh, sense of Do non-gays, yeah. non-queers yeah. do queer studies? Not really. It's, it's yeah. the gays. Uh, do, do, do people who aren't black do black studies? Not so much. And then you get the really ugly one, whiteness studies, which is the one study that is designed to attack the group in question rather than to sort of tease things out. Yes. These are ugly, ugly things to get into because I don't want to not be allowed to read James Baldwin. And I don't want James Baldwin not to be able to read Genet, you know? I wouldn't myself, uh, not great. But, but you know, I, I don't want people to be stuck in categories like this, but this is what we're starting to do. This is what we've been doing for a little while now. You can understand the experience if the experience is like yours. And you'll get given, you'll, you'll find it's empowering, for instance. You'll find it's empowering. Well, 
then you have, sorry, very quickly, then you have the flip side of that is which you're not allowed to create other than in your lane. The thing that Lionel Shriver walked into a couple of years ago in Brisbane. The, the idea that you, you, uh, um, it, you've got to be of X characteristic in order to be able to write about it. And that has, that has flooded through the mainstream. And not enough people, not enough grown-ups have said to hell with that. No, no, no. No, if you're going to create, just like if you're going to read or study or admire, you can admire, read, study, write, whatever the hell you want. And indeed, you should seek to do it outside your lane. You should, you should be discouraged from staying in your lane. Exactly so. I would even go so far as to say, if there is anything, and Frederick Douglass is, of course, very good on this, if there's anything that you want an oppressed, neglected, denied of freedom person or demographic to believe, it is that they have within themselves the human capacity by nature to embrace the highest and best things. Yeah. And what, what really, what really comes, what this ideology comes around to saying is stay in your lane. Mm. You are, you, you really are yeah. not capable of these heights of the human spirit yeah. that in fact are, uh, belong to you by nature. And by the way, shouldn't we also, there are certain things inbuilt that make this very advantageous for people. I realized one recently, somebody said to me the other day, a very, Social justice uh, inclined uh, 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 person said to me um, that Immanuel Kant used the N word, and I said I don't know that he did actually. I, I, I have to check, right? It seems unlikely, but this person said no, no, no Negro. He definitely says, definitely says Negro. And I said, look, I, I, I don't know, maybe somewhere, but, 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 and then it suddenly dawned on me. Oh, of course, you don't have to read Kant now. You don't have to do the work. You've got a way out. Now, this has become very, very prevalent. You can skip a load of work because of the wrong think of the people who did it. Well, see, I would, I would, I, this is, I'm glad you brought that up because this is something I very much want to, uh, to explore with you, Douglas. And that is that this whole worldview depends on an account of history. Mm. That history is fundamentally, um, a succession of oppressions by various groups over various other groups, and that that is really fundamentally what it is, and that we now live in the time of overturning those oppressions, of a kind of uh, liberation from the past, which is, you know, pretty uniformly, though in diverse ways, uh, needing to be dismissed. And the whole language of, you know, privilege or um, uh, uh, of whether it's checking your privilege or of uh, putting some awareness, coming to some awareness of the power that you have. That whole standpoint portrays itself as in opposition to the historic records, to the received past. And I want to ask you a few questions about that because, well, for a number of reasons. First, because the, I want to really get into why the past has to be considered so evil. Mm. Because for the first, the first thing I think we need to say is that most of the critiques made of the past are so intellectually facile as mm. to, as to be ludicrous almost at face value. As if, you know, all 
uh, as if, all, for example, all men were intentionally oppressive of their <laughs> of their wives yes. and daughters. I have a, one of my best friends has, has th- three daughters, and and though I know our friendship is very deep, I can never imagine a circumstance in which he would intentionally or otherwise put our friendship above what he would know to be the very real good of, of his daughters. And so the point I'm looking to make here is twofold. The first is that the critiques that underlie this worldview of the past are intellectually absurd. The second is that one then has to ask, well, why are they made? So let's say that the objective here is, uh, you know, in the case of, say, checking your privilege, you know, if one, to steel man that argument, one would say, it is, of course, a good thing to be self-aware, to be critical, to be self-critical of the ways in which you, you might unintentionally or intentionally hurt others. Like, like all these vices, are, all these vices are founded in a virtue. Well, you know, well that, that, that's, that's exactly right. And so then the question is, well, if we were really interested in making people genuinely self-critical, aware of their, uh, their tendency towards, let's say, one way of putting this would be arbitrary self-will. You know, the, 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 the endless will to power of the self. Well, I mean, it turns out that when you look at, you know, the serious books of our own past, that that is one of the matters with which they are most deeply and profoundly concerned. I mean, you can go back to, you can look at Homer, you can look at Plato or Aristotle, you can look at the, the Greek tragedians, you can look at Augustine, Boethius, Dante, Aquinas, Descartes, Kant, any of these people have astoundingly rich conceptions of the nature of the human being precisely in relation to how you prevent it from an immediacy of self-realization that annihilates that which is it, that which is in, in front of it. And if you look at the Christian tradition, the whole language of the moral life, of sin, of the need for self for introspection, for self-criticism, the need to put the other before yourself. That is to say that one of the most perverse aspects of this worldview seems to me that it, because of its account of history, and one has to say, well, why is it telling us the story of history that is so obviously false? Is that it actually denies us access to the rich resources of the tradition that would help us bring about in ourselves the self-consciousness that it claims to be after. That's one of the points. Um, I first became aware some years ago now, when I first started reading Strauss, of the the fallacy of the moderns who thought that they knew more than Plato because they were born after Plato. Yes, yes. Yeah, th- th- this, is, this is overwhelming now. Because, yes. Because if everybody in the past existed in a patriarchal society and a racist society and so on and so forth and so forth, Almost nobody makes the modern purity test. Therefore, you're better than them. Therefore, as I say, the first thing is, what a relief. We don't have to study it. We're just naturally better. We know more. And the second bit of it is, of course, you can war on the past. Now, that's why, because I'm very, very concerned with this book to uh, offer answers and ways out. And one of the things that I've focused on, there's a chapter on it, you know, is the issue of forgiveness, because I've, I've become obsessed by this issue and I can get very few other people to get obsessed by it too, but I, I'd like to invite people to obsession over this issue. Um, 
This idea that we can stand in judgment on the past is, among other things, very dangerous because I submit every peoples and individuals in the world in history have always done things which we look back on after us and say, what were they thinking? And, of course, the fallacy that's built into it very often is they... Knowing what we know, why did they do that? <laughs> they didn't know what we know. Yes. I, the world didn't mean to go to war in 1914. I mean, not everyone wasn't completely pumped for it and just couldn't wait for four years of war. They had no idea. But that is, it is a very common fallacy. And like, why didn't they realize they shouldn't have sent children up chimneys in Victorian England? Why didn't they realize it was bad for them? Et cetera, et cetera. So, I suggest always we should assume that our own societies are doing some things which are morally amazing to our successors. We should assume that we are doing such things because everyone has, and we should try to be more self-critical about what those things might be. But the reason that I mention this is because, of course, the problem about judging the past in this way is if you don't have a reasonable attitude toward the past, i.e. one that isn't purely laced with vengeance and zero-sum politicking. If you don't have a reasonable attitude towards the past, then it's highly unlikely you're going to encourage your successors to have a reasonable attitude towards us. And having a forgiving attitude towards the past and an understanding attitude is, among other things, shoring up something against posterity to say, be gentle with us too. That's very beautifully said, Douglas, and I, I, uh, I think the... the Part of your book that moved me most was the section on forgiveness. So let's let's spend a few minutes talking about that. Um, you know, you you say in the very early pages of your book that these ideological, these kind of weaponized ideological standpoints are aiming to articulate a, a new metaphysics, and we've or a metaphysics, and we've given a few characteristics of that over the last few minutes. But the spirit in which you've written your book is not merely diagnosis, but uh, a brave effort to put things on the table in the hope that we can move past them. Mm. And and so that the question I think that leads us to is, what are the characteristics of a standpoint that is that would be more adequate to the fullness of our living together to the fullness of ourselves as individuals and as living in relation to one another. And, and you, you, you often, several times in the book, you say, well, if on the one hand the view is there's nothing but power, let's look on the other hand and think about love and forgiveness. Hmm. And I have the sense as I read your, your book and the other things I've read of yours over the years, that you believe that love and forgiveness are real things. They're not merely uh, uh, ephemeral or imaginative. They're not merely imaginative constructs. They're, they're actually real. And, and so what I want to... I think the same thing about truth, by the way. Like a truth. Well, and we can... There's a wonderful... Uh, section in the book that I, if we have time, we'll come back to on truth. Um, I want to ask about forgiveness. If it's even possible 
what does that say about the nature of the real? And if we can oppose that to the zero-sum game, right? Because the zero-sum game is just, there is no forgiveness, right? No, it's just to take from one you to another. You do one thing once in your life and you're toast. Yes. And it's a vision in which there's no recovery, right? Ever any recovery. No. And so the very idea that forgiveness could be real presents a radically different standpoint. And and you say it, in fact, at one point... Um, if I uh, if I have this 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 right, um, I'm going to find this here in the in the book. You say that at the heart of which attitude lies the strange retributive instinct of our time towards the past, which suggests that we know ourselves to be better than the people in history because we know how they behaved and we know that we would have behaved better. And then you continue. However, to view the past with some degree of forgiveness is among other things an early request to be forgiven or at least understood. In turn, because not everything we are doing or intend to do will necessarily survive this whirlwind of retribution and judgment. So my question is, Douglas, let's make this as concrete as as we can. All of us have done wrong things, all of us have hurt others. What is forgiveness? And what does it mean that it's real? Real forgiveness depends on two major factors. Somebody doing a wrong and the person to whom a wrong is done. The forgiveness has to be sought by the person who has done the thing that is wrong and granted by the person who has been wronged. Now, here's part of the problem at the moment. People are auditioning, plausibly or otherwise, to be the person who has been wronged. Because they aren't actually the person who has been wronged, they are not in a position to give the forgiveness. This is a major fault in the system. Um, there's a very remarkable short book by uh, Simon Wiesenthal called The Sunflower. I don't know if you know it. Do you know? It's a it's a strange book. Uh, uh, some people think I think it's it's a true story. Others that it's a sort of fictionalized event. But Wiesenthal, who was of course in one of the camps, um, was writes a description of one day being pulled out of a line and being taken to the deathbed of a Nazi officer who is clearly very near death and burns and things. But he's um, uh, he is on his deathbed, and he tells the story of a village that he's liquidated. And he tells it to this, this Jewish man who's been pulled out of the line in the camps. And it's um, a description of the horrors that he's committed. And it becomes clear, it dawns on the, on the Jewish man who's hearing this sort of deathbed confession, the Simon Wiesenthal figure, that really what's happening is it's a deathbed confession and he's being asked, the implication is to, to, to say, I forgive you. Um, the description goes on, the Nazi officer finishes and the Jewish man gets up and he walks out. And the, the first edition published of the Sunflower has a, um, a, a set of appendices by various philosophers and thinkers of the time, uh, some very distinguished ones, 
mulling on the question of whether the man did the right thing. There's broad consensus, actually, among the things that he did, and it's for the reason I just outlined. Um, the people in that village uh, uh, had the right, if asked, possibly, to forgive. Possibly. It's, it's a superhuman act in any situation. But Gosh, it's a superhuman act in that situation. But the people who had directly suffered could have had the right. They shouldn't have been expected to, but they could have had the right. Another person who happened to be Jewish almost certainly didn't have the right to forgive on behalf of the people of that village. So the man does the right thing in going out and not giving atonement because the man doesn't deserve to get it from him because he doesn't have the right to give it. Now, this is one of the oddities of our society is that people, I mean, obviously that is the most extreme example I've just given, but people are not able to give the atonement because they did not suffer the, the crime. They did not suffer the sin. And this is becoming a very, very pertinent thing these days because there are plausible and very loud, increasingly loud demands for things like reparations for historical wrongs. And you've even seen in the last year the movement from people saying that there should be reparations for people on behalf of racial groups, although they themselves did not suffer the wrong, people of their own racial group in previous generations did. You've now seen already the spilling out of that into things such as uh, reparations to gays. Now, that's a very interesting example, because a gay person today who has not really suffered at all should almost certainly not get any cash, because somebody they didn't, Alan Turing, for instance, was tortured basically because of his sexuality in that day. But that doesn't mean you just give a gay guy today like half a million quid for Alan Turing. Why doesn't it work there and more people plausibly think that it's a plausible thing to do in relation to uh, people who uh, never themselves experienced slavery, colonialism, or whatever. But the point here is there's a set of things built in again, isn't there? It's convenient for some people to claim that such a hurt has in fact been done to them, that they are still suffering from that hurt. And we don't have any way to gauge that. And take that forward to the social media age. In the social media age, it is absolutely impossible to know whether or not the claim that's being made of hurt done is at all true itself. We simply have to believe it every time. I'm hurt by X, which has led us to this very strange position in society where there's a there's an arms race to be hurt. Mm. See... A few things to say in response to that, and uh, and I want to bring this back to uh, the fact that some of our listeners are uh, likely at the uh, younger side of life and looking for some sense of how to find their way through yeah. this this complex minefield. Um, but just to pick up on what you've said about uh, victimhood, you know, no one would deny that there are not. Victim, that some people are are victims, um, but as as a, there's a wonderful conversation between uh, Rabbi Sachs and Jordan Peterson on this very question, in which it becomes clear that the problem in a victimhood narrative is not that there aren't victims. Of course, there are clear cut, certainly 
uh, uh, people who are simply victims of the actions of others. But that in order to transcend that wrong against you, in the case of a victim, you cannot do that by ex understanding yourself exclusively as a victim. You can only move forward against the wrong by transcending the wrong, by saying, I'm not simply going to be defined by yes. that. I have a transcendent subjectivity that can rise up, that is, will no doubt remember and live at some level in relation to this, but can rise up above it. So yes, in the, the, the most extreme example, if, if a person who has been treated like an animal must by necessity not accept that the thing they're being treated as is what they are. Yes, that's exactly the point I'm, 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 I'm wanting to make, so that they're... What I take to be one of the characteristics of a more adequate worldview that I see to be present in your book implicitly and at times explicitly is a sense of our yes embodied and yet at the same time transcendent mm. subjectivity. And so I want to return to this question of forgiveness because I think you very rightly say that it's not up to us to forgive the wrongs that have not been committed against us. But there's a more, there's another side of this that I think needs to come out, which is that it makes all the difference in how you act mm. if you act as though forgiveness is possible right. rather than that it isn't. And one of the, right. the most uh, sobering and saddening aspects of the phenomena you delineate in the book, Douglas, is it has to do with online culture, social yeah. media, the way in which your your life can be over because of a tweet. Uh, that it, it, I, I have some, I won't read them now, but some very powerful passages in your book in which it becomes, you, you really bring out how online culture has this immense, very irresponsibly wielded power. And so to bring it back to our, our, our listeners who are trying to find their way navigate their way through these high seas of mm. contemporary culture, but to live lives with integrity and meaning, it seems to me that one of the questions is, how do you act when you believe that forgiveness is possible? How does that lead you, to, to just really make this very concrete, I don't mean to be abstract, how do you live in relation to others if you believe that forgiveness is possible and that life is not a zero-sum game. Here's one thing. You, you, you take risks. Mm. You're willing to take risks. In your life choices, in your actions, yes. and sometimes, very often, in your attitudes towards others. Uh, that doesn't mean that risks are endless or boundless or can always be forgiven, but you don't decide to just slip through life being as harmless as possible. And let me make this concrete. I, I give the example, I'm not an enormous admirer of Hannah Arendt, but there was an essay of hers, lecture of hers in the 50s that I cite in the book, which I was very struck by when I came across it a few years ago. And Hannah Arendt talks about the, the nature of acting in society. She says, our, our big problem, or she's saying this in the 1950s, and my God, how much more true this is today. She says, the problem always for us as human beings was the problem of action in the world, because we never knew what the consequences of our actions would be, what the consequences of words would be. And, and, and the, the horror of it always for us as a species was that we knew that we would see and understand the consequence of actions and the 
unbelievably wide variety of potential repercussions from them, and that once they're out in the world, we have no way of pulling them back in, that an, a word said can't be unsaid, and that a deed done mm. can't be undone, and we're stuck with it. We're stuck with the things we've done, with ramifications that can go out everywhere and can change the world for the negative, for the worse. This is an unbelievable burden, and we've always had it. In the online era, oh, my God. This is why I have enormous sympathy for people, young people growing up in this mm. melee. I have much more sympathy than a lot of people of my own age. I've just turned 40, so I'm an old-timer by now. But, you know, um, <laughs> but, but I, I, some people, you know, just think the young people are going nuts and so on. No, 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 no. They are confronting this absolutely central question, which is worse than it's ever been in human history, because we live in this era where, for instance, one, one maybe flippant example, it sounds, but it isn't flippant for the girl in question. A young woman in America is going to her prom, and she she's, uh, takes a photo of her in her dress, which is a sort of red Chinese-inspired prom dress. She takes a photo of it and puts it up online, hoping, like most young women doing that, they're going to get a certain number of hearts and likes and approvals and ticks, and it'll give her a little burst of endorphins and, and she'll feel good about it by the time. No, no, no. This poor young woman, uh, uh, immediately the, the photograph goes around the world. People accuse her of cultural appropriation for wearing a Chinese-inspired dress whilst not being Chinese. And by the end of the evening, she's around the entire world with people saying, oh, is casual racism the theme of your prom? What do you do in the world where just what you wear one night at one prom in one far-flung estate somewhere could be everywhere in the world by the end of the evening? There's one thing most of all you would do. You would act less and less and less. You would do less and less and less. Now, this brings me back to Hannah Arendt because Arendt makes a crucial point. We only as a species ever found one way to deal with the horrific difficulty mm -hmm. of the question of acting in the world, and that was the mechanism of forgiveness, which, of course, religion has been particularly good at addressing, but in general, it has been the only mechanism to get out that we have. And it's an enormously complex subject, obviously, but without something like the mechanism of forgiveness... Action just continues forever, mm. endlessly, irretrievably, appallingly. And we, as societies, at the same time as the social media world, the communications revolution, all of these things we all know about, at the same time that has been going on, has been making acting in the world more and more precarious. Nobody, but nobody seems to be thinking about forgiveness. What does it mean? How does that girl who wore the, the, the Chinese-inspired prom dress get atonement or forgiveness from it? Do, like, do all of the people in China have to simultaneously say, we are not offended anymore, we forgive you? What is it? What is it? Um, what about people, I give a couple of examples, who've, who've said stupid things in tweets at various points. What do you do in your life that what good can you do that would be seen to have atoned for that? And the answer that our society says is nothing, nothing. Now, there were mechanisms, even in not very distant past. The most famous example is the British politician John Profumo, who after uh, being found to be having an affair with a, a couple of call girls who were also having an affair with the uh, then-Soviet military attaché in London, uh, created this famous scandal 
in Britain in the 1960s, the Profumo affair. John Profumo leaves frontline politics in this, after this uh, uh, scandal, but it's recognized that, uh, uh, broadly speaking, that he atoned for it by working uh, uh, at uh, Toynbee Hall in the east end of London with deprived people pretty much for the rest of his career. So that was seen to be atonement. That was seen to be atonement. Even a sort of increasingly secularizing society it wasn't specifically Christian. It did definitely have a Christian component, this, this idea. But there was a way out. What is the way out today? Uh, not even being, you know, a minister with call girls and a Soviet military attaché in the picture. Just a normal person making a normal mistake at a normal age online. And people aren't thinking about it. And so, so what it means is we're telling people simply to act in the world less and less. And let me give you one other really, mm. really difficult one of this. What, look at the, the, this brings us back to the thing about the retributive attitude towards history. We have this thing always going around in Britain about Churchill. It, it comes up every couple of years or so. And there's, uh, somebody will do something attacking Winston Churchill, they'll say, and he drank too much. It doesn't seem to me to be a vice, but, uh, uh, or they'll say, you know, the stuff about the Bengal famine, which is highly disputed, incidentally, by Andrew Roberts and others. But, but, uh, you, you, Tony Pandy's, uh, uh, say, say he sent in, uh, the police and a miner was killed in 1910. Okay. For this, he must never be forgiven. Uh, most people, resile against this. They, they, they know there's something wrong with it. Now, the thing that's wrong is two things. The first is something people seem to be, broadly speaking, aware of, which is, I'm sorry the miner died 110 years ago, but oughtn't it to count as something that he saved civilization in 1940? <laughs> oughtn't the fact that that he was willing to stand alone and make his country stand alone against Hitler at that juncture. Ought, oughtn't that to be like in the tick column of the equation? Can't it be? Now, people are aware of that bit, but the second thing, which is the thing that people seem, I think, not to notice, but I think may even be a built-in idea with, I mean, some people just would be attacking Churchill because they think that he's the sort of... Um, um, the holy of holies of British nationalism or patriotism or something like that. And therefore, if you get Churchill, you can get the patriots and then you'll stop Brexit or some, something. There's definitely an element of that. <laughs> There's definitely an element of that somewhere. They, cho they choose a target well. Okay. But the second thing that's much more interesting is that why I worry about that sort of thing, why I worry about an unreasonable attitude towards history is a young person looking at what would be a heroic thing in the world, couldn't get a better example in recent generations than one man walking against the tide of his time, of his class, of his group, of his peers, warning about what turned out to be the greatest evil in modern history, perhaps in all history, warning about it, standing alone against it, persuading the country to stand alone against it, and ending up stopping the most evil idea of all time, sweeping across Europe and the civilized world. And if you look at that and you think, one error 30 years before that doesn't wipe that out, what chance do I have? What chance do I have of ever doing anything? Mm. So what I'll do is I won't bother.
I'll just try to slide through this thing. Be harmless. Don't aspire to much. Because nothing in the end will save you from having been plausibly accused of having an error once, making an error once, and that's it. I think it's one of the most profound, enervating things in our time. Mm. Gosh, that's very powerfully said, Douglas. The, the, um, the way in which that cultural standpoint and the technological mm. modes through which it is enforced, as you say, has the, res- has the result of a profound undermining, a, a degradation, a closing off of the possibilities. Can, can I just can yeah. we say one other thing yeah, on please. that? Which is, is, is that, I mean, this is something Jordan and I have spoken about, and Roger, the Scruton and I have spoken about as well. And I'm, I'm just, I'm really interested in this because I'm interested in how young, younger people can find their ways to, to acting in the world in, mm. in ways that, don't just help them, but help everyone. And I have this, this thing about the harmlessness culture, the sort of don't offend anyone, don't take risks because they're dangerous, don't, et cetera, et cetera, that I just think at a fundamental level, I and many other people rebel against this notion that this is a virtue. Because I just don't think that we as human beings should aspire to being only harmless. Mm. We should aspire to a whole array of things. And we could go on all night, but among them would be, how about aspiring to greatness, brilliance, extraordinariness, inventiveness, um, brilliance, all sorts of things, all sorts of things. Truth, goodness, wisdom. All of which also... Self-sacrifice, love. All of which will include at some point making mistakes. Who has ever created something beautiful first time? (laughs) See, that I think is really fundamental to the standpoint that I take you to be articulating, Douglas, which is, you know, if you you contrast the materialist determinism, the zero-sum game on the one side, on the other hand, if you have forgiveness, I mean, if, if forgiveness is possible ever on any circumstances, what it means is that there is a non-zero-sum economy yes. to the real itself. Yes. That, that there is a persistence to goodness or truth or, a let's say, a stubborn superabundance mm. to the real itself that can transcend my own well-acknowledged and well-documented failings. And I suppose when, when I'm speaking with young people, I mean, there's one of the things that I most profoundly want them to undertake life in the spirit of mm. is that confidence, not simply in themselves, because we all know that we're going to make big and small mistakes, that we ourselves do not have the power to somehow simply overdo or overcome, but to live as though the real itself is super generative is able to, you know, if one thinks, for example, of, um, you know, one of the ways that you bring this out beautifully in the book, when we talk about forgiveness, you say, um, you know, I'm thinking about advice to give young people. Mm. You say, you know, of course, everyone is living online and, you know, checking the, 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 the telephones from, 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 from the bus and from the bedroom and from the bathroom and from everywhere, you know, it's just this ubiquity of, of the online virtual world. 
And that leads you to a certain understanding, particularly relative to the dangers of it, mm. of how the real really is. But you say, I think very lovely, uh, in a lovely phrase here, when someone is face to face with another person, mm. it is far harder to reduce them to one thing that they have said or strip them of all characteristics except one. Mm. And it seems to me that one of the things that we might encourage ourselves and others, and think of young people especially, to do is not to act as if the online world is, is real. the real world or the only world. Yeah. And as much as possible to bring things down to the concrete yes. and to actually take out the person for a coffee or to cultivate real friendships mm. such that these things can become incarnate in the person in front of you, in the dynamics of your relationship, whether with your partner, your friend, your family, your employers, whatever, rather than in the kind of virtual space of the uh, the online. Yes, I, maybe somebody, everybody of a certain generation has found a way to do this. It's easier than people who are growing up with it. But mm. give an example of the sort of realization people can make from this. I, I, without sounding like I'm just boring on about the problems of social media, I'm. I do discourage people from doing too much of it for a lot of reasons. But one of the ways I sometimes say this to people is um, you will always have a moment when you realize it's one of the things most important to you made absolutely no impact online, and you should learn from that. <laughs> yes, yes. It happened some years ago. I was uh, um, a very dear friend who died. I was asked to give the eulogy at his memorial service, his funeral service. And I did, and it was one of the things I thought about most. That yeah, I worked very, very hard at it. I wanted to make sure I got it completely right for him, and uh, I thought I got it about as right as I could. And uh, it was very hard, as that is, as you know, if you've ever done it. Um, but uh, it was one of the things I was proudest of at that stage of my life. And um, I, funnily enough, uh, I checked online. <laughs> On Twitter, I think, just to see if anyone had tweeted about it. One person had. But my instinct of this immediately was good. Because I know that the thing of worth has nothing to do with this. And that therefore don't put too much on this. Don't expect too much of this. Because this isn't where it is. Mm. This is not where it is. Yes, I see... Um, bringing things in the next uh, little bit here to a close in our conversation. I know we, we must wrap up. S a couple of things that I see persistently in your position, D Douglas, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I want to tease these out for our listeners. One is certainly the, the, trans the transcendence of forgiveness as a principle and what that reflects about the nature of reality itself, not being a zero-sum game. Another is the, the transcendence of truth itself. Yes. That the, you know, you have, there's a wonderful phrase in, in, your, in your book. You quote um, from uh, one of the magnificent Weinstein brothers. That oh, yeah. In this case, it's um, Brett uh, in the midst of the, the business at Evergreen saying to the students who came up to him that they needed to grasp the difference between debate 
and dialectic. <laughs> and he says, debate means you're trying to win. Dialectic means you are using disagreement to discover what is true. Mm. I am not interested in debate. I am interested only in dialectic, which does mean I listen to you and you listen mm. to me. But the very confidence, the, the right. very possibility of, of dialectic in the sense that, Brett, that, that Weinstein says it there, is to presume that there is a truth to reality that transcends our own grasp on it and that we can have this conversation and come to a deeper sense of it than we could yeah. uh, otherwise. Um, and so, concluding our discussion, I want to ask you uh, a couple of things. The first is, it's really just one thing in different forms. I want to know for our listeners, many of whom will be uh, great admirers of Douglas, Douglas Murray, I want to know what were the influences for you in the habit and power of your mind, its self-critical abilities and your capacity for courage. So I know that many young people who reach out to me online and otherwise are looking for encouragement hmm. as to how they can live with courage and also sensitivity to the world. These are not, you know, rampant ideologues. They're people who really want deeply to live in relation to what's real, what, what they can build on the bedrock of, and are very aware of not only the online pitfalls, but the, the pitfalls that, that, that they themselves have internally. Mm. And so I'm wondering, what are the, what are the things in your life that were influential in your coming to a certain independence, courage, and self-criticism? Let me, um, I will answer that. And, uh, but let me first start by saying something about dialectic. What Brett Weinstein says there is, throws up two very important points. The first is, I don't know about you, but in my case, I feel much more confident about the dialectic and my interest in it the older I get because I feel less risk in it. When you're young, there's a risk in it because there's a risk you're wrong. And it's harder to deal with that the younger you are, I think. Not everyone feels this. I think because when you're young and you, you're wrong, it's an assault on yourself because you're still creating yourself. Mm. So you, you don't want too many, you don't want to be wrong on too many things because that's you and you're, you're not formed completely yet. And it feels like an attack. I mean, why are people who are young worse at taking criticism than people when they're older? Because you've had less of it and you think it's about you. And if it's about you, then, oh, hell, maybe I'm just not suited for this life. And, and in my case, I mean, like a lot of you, I'm much more ideological when I was younger because it seems like less of a risk not to be so ideological the older. It's less of a risk the older you are to just not really care that much. You want to get to, Truths, the truth. You, you, wherever the, the the information comes from, you'd rather you'd rather be be right in the long run than just have the right feeling that evening. And so I think that, that one thing is you do have to have a certain confidence, and that's why what Brett was saying to those students at Evergreen was completely correct and to the wrong audience because there was no way that these 
these mm. students standing outside his office gibbering and screaming and, and so, but but here's a part of the problem is that people are being told you are living at such a dangerous time that you can't risk the dialectic because the dialectic might be nazis coming through the back door secretly i mean this you know you've got to remember the lunacy and the craziness of what's being suggested here which is a, a liberal arts college in oregon is basically about to turn nazi highly unlikely venue for it in my view but um uh, but 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 that's that people people fear the discussion if they think they're on the brink of the catastrophe and if you're told you are always on the brink of the catastrophe then why would you risk the discussion so that's the first thing the second thing though mm. is there's a very very interesting issue about this in general the when i was uh growing up and reading my own way through the things that I was becoming interested in. I wasn't doing for, so purely for intellectual pursuit. One of the things I found rather uh, disappointing in academia when I, was in, when I was at university, largely this was my own fault, but, um, but one of the things I found disappointing was the sort of abandonment of the idea that we were actually engaged in the pursuit of truth. There was a sort of sense that the whole thing was an intellectual game in somewhere. And I just sort of felt at some quite deep level that wasn't what I thought I was in it for. That's why I didn't think any of us were quite in it for. And I was, I was rather surprised to find that was the case. I never forget, and maybe I shouldn't say this, but I never quite, one thing that encapsulated it for me once. I met the very distinguished poet Seamus Heaney, who I, I, his work I like, but you know, a poet, I mean, a poet, that's it, that's who's going to tell you the meaning of life when you're 20. I remember seeing Seamus Heaney at something once, he'd read my first book, and uh, we were talking about uh, um, a poem of Oscar, a rather obscure poem of Oscar Wilde's, and I remember he, he said to me, what, what do you think the etymology of this word that Wilde uses is? And I just, I was so frustrated. I thought, I don't want to talk to a poet. I don't want to talk to Seamus Heaney about etymology. I want you to tell me what the meaning of life is, mate. <laughs> yes. I, what do you think we're doing here? And um, that seemed to me to be, to, in some ways, encapsulated for me a certain thing that, at any rate, for me, university risk, that we were going to play the interesting game, but we weren't really going to get to what I thought was the, on Yiddish, you say, the tuckless, the, 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 yeah. the thing of the, the meat of the matter. The meat yeah. of the matter. Yeah. Um, and I do, um, I, I do think, I, I don't, I'm interested in things not because it's a game, but I think we are getting somewhere, or at least I hope we are. I don't mean we as a society, but we as people, we're, we're doing something here. We're doing something. And, and one of the few ways I can encapsulate this is I think, I think we're, trying to find out the thing and it's the thing worth finding out about mm. now that brings me to the question you ask about um and may i just interject for a second mm. to say that it seems to me there is a wonderful parallel between what you've said about forgiveness and what you said about truth right because both of those if i can have a conversation knowing i might be wrong that i might make all sorts of uh, provisional and false assertions but in the confidence that in that conversation there will come to be a richer grasp on what really is than i came in with just as i can act knowing that I will make mistakes, but that the nature of the real is such that even those mistakes can be taken up in mm. a better, fuller sense of things. That they both, will be absorbed within it. Yes, that both, that what both 
in relation to forgiveness and in relation to truth, this position would suggest that there is, well, to put it frankly, a kind of transcendent economy, an economy that transcends those failings that can take it up into itself. And that is, so just to be clear, what that is to say is that if my, even my false assertions can be a way into a deeper grasp of the truth, yeah. if even my, in retrospect, wrong things I have done can, in a fuller sense, become means of a deeper, fuller sense of the real, it seems to me that both of those things indicate that, you know, not to speak think about things in any sense religiously at all, but both of those things indicate that the nature of the real itself has a non-zero-sum character. So, on with thoughts and advice, reflections, you might say, to young people, many of whom I know will be uh, great admirers of yours, uh, a bit of uh, advice about how uh, how to approach the the complexity of things, so as not to be cowed by the always apparent downsides. The first thing is um, always run at what you really want to do, mm. because the worst thing that will happen is you fall a bit short of it or very short of it. But it's better than not doing it and ending up in the wrong place completely. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I probably had a vague idea that by now I'd be a um, poet or novelist or something. And I, I don't know. I mean, the fact that I didn't write poetry probably held me back on the first of those. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that I'd never written fiction probably also held me back on the second of those. But that aside, <laughs> it was going swimmingly. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, I just had a, I had a vague sense, I suppose, I was going to be a writer of some kind. Right? find myself writing non-fiction and uh, I'm, not, I'm not disappointed by that uh, fact. But I mean, I'm saying that I, I ended up, it's not exactly what I thought I was going to do, it's pretty close. And actually, I'm, I'm more pleased I'm doing what I'm doing because mm. it seems to me at any rate that at the moment non-fiction is where it's at and, and, and that we're not, we're not particularly in an era which is demanding odes and sonnets and um, uh, it may not even be an era which is especially demanding fiction, but although my novelist friends always hate it when I say that. But the point is, 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 as I say, run at what you really want to do and, and you might, you might be lucky and fall quite close to it. And, um, and there's just nothing worse. And I've known so many people in my life, many people close to me who've, who just haven't done that. Often because they're scared or they're proud, or they don't want to take the risk of failure, and all sorts of other things. And mm. there's risks in everything, but there's a risk in spending your life not remotely getting to the thing you want to get to, and and feeling that from the very beginning you were pushed, as Larkin puts it somewhere, pushed to the edge of your own life. And it's better to be able to live knowing you're pretty close to what... The, the life is that you wanted to live than that you were on the edge of your life all the time from the start. Mm. Um, but I mean, I've, I've been, I've been lucky, but it's not just luck. 
when I, I started becoming a writer when I was very young, I wrote my first book in my gap year and it came out in my second year at university. And so I was already sort of set up as a writer of some kind from an, I suppose, the age of 20 or so. Um, so I've been in this for 20 years now. <laughs> and, uh, um, I, I was lucky when I started writing about current affairs and ideas. Um, my first book was on literature, so it was slightly different, but I was lucky in getting to know and being encouraged by a number of really just wonderful people. Um, two from the outset of my career as a writer who were enormously encouraging were, um, Christopher Hitchens and Roger Scruton. Two very different people. Uh, mm. Christopher reviewed my first book and reviewed it very favorably and we got to know each other after that and became friends. And, uh, Roger Scruton was, uh, one of the first people who sort of spotted me in a, online magazine we were both writing for in the early 2000s and obviously recognized there was some kindred spirit there and it was meant to be left and right uh writing at their best against each other or taking on each other's arguments of course didn't happen it was a great big on pile on by the left on the right and i think the only two right vaguely right-wing people were roger scruton and me and i remember roger saying there's about fifty thousand leftists and us douglas so it's a fair fight and <laughs> um uh and obviously, Christopher is very much of the left, and and, and Roger is, is is of the right. I don't think it's any secret. Um, uh, but I was very lucky because both of them took um, an interest and um, encouraged me. And funny enough, you look, look look back and you think it, it wasn't like you go on, Douglas. You've really got to, it's, it's just small things, and you also notice it in the absence of other people. You know, other people don't do things. You know, some people just don't do things to help and. You know, they hear about something they don't tell you, you know. And, um, anyhow, there were many other people as well, including, um, teachers, former teachers of mine and university and others who, who just helped all the way along. And, um, and as I say, when I say it's not entirely accident, what I mean by that is, is that it's, it's not like sometimes people say, you know, oh, you're so lucky to have known X or Y. It's not only luck. It's like, it's also that it's worth, it's always worth gravitating towards brave people. Mm. Um, it's something I've noticed a lot at the moment in audiences and others. I've taken in recent years to asking people why they go to things. And I'm really struck by the number of student-aged people and below and, and above who say that they, they're not, they're not entirely able to be honest about what they think in their own lives and they would like to be in a room with somebody who's saying things that they also agree with or mm. they would like to be able to say in their own lives because they think that it will it will help them and it's true it's true it will help them do it themselves and you see i found this because and there are so many people this has been the case with who i've been fortunate enough to know and to get to know they do things and it's easy and you see things can look so terrifying when you don't see them up close from the distance you'll say oh my gosh i can never imagine saying that but if your friend your mate is doing that and it's in front of you and it's fine then you it's okay it's okay i learned from christopher from roger and others that it's 
a, a very fundamental truth that it's worth trying things out and it's worth saying things because if if you think them, the likelihood is that there will be other people who do as well. And one of the best things as a writer is when you say something and everyone goes, oh, <laughs> they all know it's true. It's a glorious thing. It's a glorious thing. You say the thing that everyone sort of wanted to say, but they just didn't. But you, but the best way to do that sort of thing, I mean, not everyone's going to be a writer, obviously. Not everyone should be a writer. The whole economy would grind to a damn halt. But, hmm. but in different ways, in all sorts of different areas yes, of life, that's yes. the case. Like, be in the proximity of people who are doing just really good stuff and brave stuff and important stuff in the sort of area you want to be in. And I know, I know mathematicians, this is the case for. I know physicists, this is the case for. I know, I know, I know people, all sorts of walks of life, and this is the case for. Migrate towards the sort of people you'd like to be. And you'll stand a much closer chance of becoming it. And that's all possible. And it's not just all about luck. There's a little bit of luck involved. But it's not just luck. That's something you do yourself. Anyhow, that isn't to say I haven't been lucky. Well, I think one of the interesting things about the advice you give there and the story, the anecdotes you tell with, with respect to Hitchens and, <clears throat> and Scruton in your own life is actually that, that that is itself a manifestation of realities that transcend the political. Mm. And so if you if you define your whole life as if somehow you have to stay within this box or that box or whatever, you close yourself off to the actual richness of what can propel and educate and ennoble and enlighten you. Uh, so I just love the way in which that, the way in which you tell that story, it becomes clear that to open yourself to the richness of reality is precisely not to insist in advance that it takes some partisan or closed ideological form. Not least because the real itself is more robust and richer than those closed ossifications would ever mm. allow it to be. Also, also. Really, and you know, there's a phrase that I'm very fond of. So it's a, it's a kind of dated phrase these days. You don't hear it very much. You used to hear it a lot. A life well lived. Do you remember that? Mm. <laughs> a life well lived. Um, it seems to me that a life well lived is among many other things. A life lived with a lot of, uh, a lot of different things going against themselves and against each other and, Work, working, wor working a lot of stuff out as you go along because, let me give an example. There was a, there was a, there's a story that Christopher used to tell of being in Sarajevo, um, uh, when the town was being bombed and, uh, mortared and another journalist one night came out on the, um, looked over the city, stood beside him smoking and said, this would be a wonderful time to be in love. <laughs> and um, not everyone, but a lot of people know exactly what what that person was talking about. Mm. It's a really, uh, and I've I've had a little bit of that. I've seen a little bit. I know that in I know the what that runs off among other things. The complexity of that, the truthfulness of that. Um, there were there was just so. I mean, life is so 
damn interesting, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, uh, and it's so complex, and human beings are capable of just so many extraordinary things, you know, things you find out as you go along, you've never imagined, you think, you did what? And you don't want to cut yourself off from that, you don't really cut yourself off from anything, and if you do, if you cut yourself off from any experience or any person uh, who could teach you something, you're cutting off something from yourself. You're, mm. you're losing something. Gosh, that is just uh, so powerful, Douglas. The, the uh, I'm thinking of of the uh, the humbling things I've learned unexpectedly in life. Mm. How much I'd have lost had I given up that chance in advance. Last question for you. Um, What are a couple of uh, books or pieces of music, opera, poems, plays, times in history, very open and wide question, that uh, are perennially alive and rich for you, or which at some point in your life were especially important? It's easier to do the first bit than the second bit. Uh, things that, well, it, things that are at some point in your life important but aren't now is sort of less interesting in a way because... You know, there are always certain things, you know, like we've all had the experience of listening to an album that we thought was great and we haven't listened to it for some years. You know, it's just, <laughs> yes. just dire. You know, oh, God, why did I ever like that? Or, you know, certain pieces of music you had great memories of and or books you had great memories of and you returned to them. You know, oh, no, that doesn't hold. More interesting are the ones that really do hold up and they mm. stick with you throughout. Um, and those are more interesting to me at any rate. Um, I, in literature, there are several major figures I always feel I live with. I remember when I first encountered T.S. Eliot, somebody said, a, te a teacher at school said to me, Eliot isn't something you read, it's something you live with. And I can't tell you how true I found that in my life. Um, Can I, before you go on from Eliot, and you list, because I know many of our listeners will go and read these poems, can you give uh, a couple of uh, poems or names of poems that uh, have been especially have especially stayed with you? Well, everyone starts with Eliot with the early stuff, uh, um, Prufrock and uh, the Wasteland and so on. And I think that's that's definitely very very worth reading. But those aren't the poems I have in my head all the time. They're not the ones that that, that I live with. The four quartets, the ones I live with, mm, me and too. They come to me all the time, all the time. And some of it gets, some of it you don't, didn't know what it was, and then you suddenly do. Sometimes mm. you, you do, and then you forget, and then you discover it again. Um, but that, the four quartets is, is, um, from the first moment I read the first line, I remember thinking, wow, this is the thing. I mean, I thought this is like St. John's Gospel. It's, it's, uh, I've, I've got to it. I found it. And, um, so Eliot has always been that. Um, uh, there are lots of poets I've read. I mean, some, somewhat Anglo-centric, perhaps inevitably. Um, um, I'm a sort of early 20th century, mid-20th century person. I love all of that sort of writing. I love everything from the Auden sort of generation. Uh, and I, and, and various more modern poets up through Hughes and Tom Gunn. I'm very fond of and others, but not, not everyone will necessarily resonate to all of that, but some of it resonates very strongly with me. Um, I, uh, Philip Larkin, um, mm. um, 
and bits of things like uh, C. D. Lewis, uh, the individual poems that really have have stood out and lived with me. Uh, Shakespeare, rather obviously, I um, when I was at school, I saw the film of Hamlet, Ken Branner one, all star cast, and it was the first time I really thought, wow. And I I went home and you know I got my Shakespeare off the shelf and I read Hamlet probably now I sort of probably had read it already but I just I didn't I thought, oh my god it's actually it's about the thing you know Byron says that some way so he uses the phrase the thing mm. is it not the thing yes and um, Byron uh, mm. there's also all the romantics of course you will go through that but also some of that lives with me um, music has always been. Uh, my first love, actually, and um, uh, I, I could go on all night. Um, broadly speaking, there's uh, give us a few composers and of those pieces of music that our listeners can look up for themselves and listen to. I am, um, I'm a great fan of church music, early church music, early polyphony. Think of Palestrina and Gibbons and people of that yeah, sort. Yeah, and um, Talis. Um, I still think one of the great uh, joys of my life was once seeing at a friend's wedding in the in the course for, for performance of Speminalium, the Forty Park. Motet. You mentioned that in, in uh, your previous book, Strange Eyes of the Europe. Yes, uh, Speminalium, a forty part motet by Thomas Talis from the seventeenth century, right about yeah. that. Uh, a little earlier, and yeah, it, it's earlier. it's um, it's. Um, one of the great achievements of any composer, and it's just spine tingling because it's 40 of all human endeavor parts. of all time. That's spem for those listening. Spem s p e m i n in allium a l i u m. We'll put these notes online so people can follow them. But there's lots of things like Morales and uh, composers of that era, Pace Mihi Domine. These these rather sparse motets of of that era. Um, mm. Some of that I, I find very haunting. Um, 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 the Lamentations, uh, Talos's Lamentations, yeah, Jeremiah. Uh, um, yeah. But but uh, um, this also is partly the thing I, I sort of sang when I was growing up. So it's it's particularly close to my heart. Um, I as um, as I now I look back, the things I can't do without are um, Mahler. Um, hmm. particularly the third symphony. I think I would take a Mensch gebracht, the slow movement, uh, a man take heed. Uh, I, I would take that with me to the desert island. Hmm. Um, and uh, um, I've always been a modernist in musical taste. I, I, mean, I love Stravinsky, uh, everything. Um, and Messiaen, who isn't everyone's cup of tea, but I think is probably one of the last composers to have had a totalistic vision and mm. it's overwhelming uh, uh, um, at times and there, there are pieces of his uh, that I just um, am, am, am bowled over by um, uh, time and again. I I, I could go on all, all, all night. Um, there are massive chunks of things that I discover as I go along. I now for my own pleasure still play the piano for, for myself and uh, I recently discovered I'd sort of been missing Brahms for many years, and mm. I suddenly started to understand what Brahms was really doing. But uh, Benjamin Britten, Michael Tippett, mid-century, 20th-century composers, um, just just so many things. And I just what I love about music, like with literature, is that you can always discover the stuff you didn't know, and there's so much to discover. And and um, 
it's it's all there and you discover people who you think know everything don't know everything and there are all of these other pieces and all these other books all these other writers that you've still got to mm. uh, who've got so much to give and that you didn't know about and it's it's just thrilling really and um but i think in music i see and always did see the the nearest glimpse uh, um to what i think we're doing mm. what do you mean by that the nearest glimpse to what you think we're doing um, you know, I'm very fond of uh, I'm very fond of a, that moment in King Lear when Gloucester, towards the end of the play, having been blinded, tries to uh, tries to kill himself, and he's being guided by he doesn't know it, but it's one of his sons who is in disguise and. Gloucester tries to get him to help him throw himself off the cliff, and the person he doesn't know is the sun, uh, uh, leads him to what is not a cliff, and Gloucester throws himself forward. And anyhow, he, um, as it turns out, he is killed, dies shortly afterwards. But he lives for this tiny bit longer than he meant to live, and in those moments, discovers everything. And... Uh, I think that music is one of the things for me, the most, the strongest thing, which tells me that such moments are possible. Douglas, I think that's the best possible moment for us to conclude our discussion, which has ranged from madness in your uh just coming out now book madness of crowds which i encourage any and all to read not only for its diagnosis of dangerous phenomena but because it points beyond those very things ranged from madness to forgiveness love truth and the possibilities of learning even after You've jumped off the cliff. Thanks so much for coming in. It's a real pleasure. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the Ralston College Podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app or follow us on YouTube. To learn more about Ralston College, you can find us on the web at ralston.ac, or look for me, Stephen Blackwood, on ThinkSpot. If you are so inclined to review, share, or otherwise support our work, we'd be very grateful. Thanks for listening. Till next time.